welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Pastor Israel, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into the Word. Um, hey, once again, let me just say this before I pray. Just so, so grateful. Uh, I, man, I think of Jane and Becky and uh, um, of Valerie came during the week. We're just like, just moving stuff and grooving and cleaning and and pre prepping the, the space downstairs. So I would just say again, you got to go take a look. It's really cool. Like, it's really good for the life of our church to just try to do our best to care for kids. And we have been, but, it's a, but this was a move from over there to down here. And we could not have done it, with it without your help and people just helping, stepping up and doing all kinds of stuff. So check it out. It's actually, it's, it's nice. It's really cool. It's right below us. So after the service, you should check it out. Um, let, me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Lord, we are reminded that you are God and we are not. Lord, you are creator. You are good. You are just. And Lord, you are holy and therefore you must deal with sin, our sin. And in your goodness and in your sovereign plan and by your mercies and grace, you have provided a way you fulfill promises, you keep promises in your covenants, and there are mercies that just lavish us because of you and your goodness. So we thank you for the Son sending your only unique Son to die on the cross and to raise from the grave. And Father, we give you the due praise and honor and glory to the best our ability. Lord, we long for the day when we will be able to be in paradise, shed and free from sin in glory. We know that that day is coming. We know that we will be with you for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what a great day it'll be. And Father, we plead for your help right now. Let us understand your scriptures. Let us obey your scriptures faithfully. Let us acknowledge your love and your grace that we need constantly in order to be obedient to it, Lord, to be obedient to you. Lord, may we be a people that is obedient to you in all things and a people who is radically on mission, sharing and proclaiming the good news of the gospel for the dying world around us, Father pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We'll begin in uh, verse 1, and we'll be going through uh, verses 1 through 14. We're continuing in a series called The Disciple Maker. Jesus is clearly the disciple maker in the gospel of Matthew. So we'll be, we'll be dealing with the, continuing to deal with this, uh, this series and these issues in the text. Today we're going to be talking about um, addressing humility in particular um, as it affects us and how we relate to each other and how we relate to God. We'll see that unpacked in the scriptures. And here's a few things that we'll see. And we'll see, like, hey, first, first and foremost, what we will see is that humility is essential for, for Christianity. Number two, we're going to see that um, to receive Jesus' disciples, to receive one another, is to receive him, Jesus. And 
Humility impacts us in such a way that it impacts that particular issue. Number three, we will see that humility not only is essential, that it impacts in such a way in our ability to receive and the responsibility to receive one another, and even the world's responsibility to receive us. And I'll explain why. But number three, that because of that, and then if we have this humility that is instilled in us, that we, number three, need to do something radical to deal with our sin. Now, first and foremost, Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross. But because of the brokenness of the world and our, and our choices and our very nature itself that is impacted by sin until we die, that we must do battle against sin. And the scriptures say a lot, have a lot to say about that. But one of the things you'll see in this scripture this morning is we'll see uh, how, uh, how radical we should be in, order, in, in the way that we as Christians deal with sin. And number four... As it relates to humility, it will take humility to deal with sin in that particular way. But number four, we will, also, we will also see the tender heart God has for those sheep that stray away and his love for them. And you know, most recently we've seen, if you're on, you've probably heard, let me complete a sentence. You've probably heard there have been many of uh, Christians recently, famous ones, quote, end quote that have walked away from the faith very publicly. And they've had a number of things. Some have actually encouraged um, um, others, accidentally perhaps, to follow them in this, in their denial of the faith, or denial of orthodoxy in particular. And so here's the thing, though. God has a tender heart for those sheep that wander off. And it's also an extremely dangerous thing to mislead the rest of the sheep. And we'll see that in the scripture. So those four things. So let's go to the beginning. Matthew 18, verse 1. We're going to see how essential humility is to the, the Christian walk and faith of Jesus. At that time, look, the disciples come to Jesus and they're going to ask a question. The question that they ask is going to really relate to a lot of the time that they've spent with Jesus thus far. Okay? They've seen some moments where people have um, gotten some, received some favor in some way, some very real favor. Now remember, we just went through the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus takes three with him, and people and the disciples have seen this take place, or they've actually, you know, at least and they talked about it. They didn't see it, but they, they, they talked about it. He took three disciples. He took Peter and James and John to a mountain, and Jesus transfigured before him and revealed his glory. What a privileged place to be, to see Jesus reveal his glory before his disciples. And it was just those three with him. Now, the others didn't get to see that. And so, um, you can imagine that uh, in the midst of those things going on, people are asking certain questions. Like, hey, who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And that's what the text will say right here. And there's all kinds of stuff loaded behind that question. Listen to it. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And before I show you and read the text and show you how God, Jesus answers this before this, the disciples, I want you to understand that they're asking that with all kinds of issues behind it. Because here's the thing. Look, they want to have favor. They want to have a privileged position in the kingdom. It's very natural, isn't it? We want status, typically. We want to achieve. We want to have the right hand, the better seat. We want people to recognize 
our worth. And they're saying, hey, who's the greatest? And how do I get there, Jesus? Now, Matthew leaves all that stuff out. He just addresses this question, and it's probably a question that has come up many, many times among the disciples in in their bickering about this particular issue. And I tell you this, that, hey, look, you know what? We do that as well. I mean, don't we? We look at someone's house and how they have more, or they have the bigger paycheck, or they have more stuff, or whatever it is. And we, and we want, and we covet, and the disciples are working through that as well. Now, there's something dangerous behind what they're asking. I mean, it's with a single word. That danger is called pride. You see, what, what, what is behind their desire for the status is pride. And Jesus is going to point out that you cannot get into the kingdom of heaven like that. But instead, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to take a small one, he's going to take a child, and he's going to put them in the midst of them. You have to envision a very small child. You see, this object lesson communicates all kinds of things to them. You see, young, small children don't, aren't seeking after fame. They aren't seeking after high status. They're very vulnerable. They're powerless. They're not, they're not seeking any of those things that the disciples are. So listen to what he does. Number two, verse two. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, uh, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So one of the first things we learn here as fellow disciples is this, that humility is an essential thing for Christianity. One of the things that we realize that G- about children is this, that children are vulnerable. They're subject to others. They're dependent on others. They're powerless. They're not see- seeking social status like the way we all are. Hey, look, you know, I love sports and I love all those things. But look, you know, driven behind all that is like, it's like status and power and fame and look at me. And it's uh, mixed in all of that is all kinds of good motives as well, by the way. Like, I, I know that. We know that. But in the brokenness of this world, there's messiness to it, okay? There, there, just, there is. And the disciples, even though they're closest to Jesus and they, and they love Jesus and they're following him, they're asking this question, who is the greatest and in the kingdom of heaven because I want to know how to get there so that when we're walking around heaven, people go, they look at you and they see me with you. It's kind of like wanting to be really close to a famous person. Not for your like or enjoyment of that relationship, but because of what you feel that it does for you. It makes you look better. No, I'm here with fill in your favorite whatever. And those people hate that, by the way, right? They're like, dude, they don't really like, they don't really want me for me they just, they, just, they just want what I can give them. But children, um, they don't have that. And here's the thing. When we're reading this, we need to understand this. This is key to understanding this text, is that Jesus, in talking about this, is not talking about children. Jesus is talking about his disciples, and he's going to refer to us as to them as to little ones. Now, I've heard people do all kinds of things with this text, and, you know, and, like, you probably read this text and think, and with what's going to come in the text, you'll be like, dang, there's no way I'm doing kids' ministry because that's dangerous. And you'll see why in just a moment. 
But Jesus is saying, hey, an essential factor to being a Christian, the way to get into the kingdom of heaven, in addition, is, is, is by faith. It's humility. He says, unless you be turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 5. He says, the meek will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is what Jesus has been talking about. It's the meek. It's not the prideful. Pride is evil. Pride is sinful. Pride is dangerous. Pride is harmful. With pride, we will not love each other. We will get in the way of each other. Jesus says, you must be like a child. You must become like a child to inherit the kingdom of God. Number two, Jesus says this. Hey, look, whoever receives one of these receives me. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned to the depth of the sea, or in the depth of the sea, excuse me. Whoever receives, go back to verse 5, and look what it says. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus has something very particular in mind. What's going to happen to his disciples in the very near future is they're going to be rejected because of who they're associating with, Jesus. And it's going to happen for centuries. People reject his people, and they reject Jesus. And it says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I think one of the most helpful ways to help us understand this, that look, Jesus is saying, hey, look, if you receive one of my disciples, one of my little ones who's proclaiming, sharing, uh, bringing Christ with him to you, then you're not just accepting and receiving him, you're receiving me. Think of it this way. When Paul the Apostle, before he was Paul and his name was Saul, he was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church terribly. He was persecuting the church horrifically. And Jesus comes to him and is going to convert him. But Jesus comes to him and he says, Saul, Saul, as, Paul, as Saul was on his way to persecute the church, he had just given the okay, he approved the, the, the persecution and the death of one of a, a, a beloved disciple of Jesus, and he's going on to, to arrest more, and the text even says more men and women so he could persecute them. And on the way, Jesus meets him, and what does he say? Does he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? doesn't say that. What he does say is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because what Jesus is saying, when you persecute my little ones, you don't just persecute them, you persecute me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my little ones? Jesus says here, before all that takes place, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. There's a couple things we need to understand about this. One is that it's important that the people of God would receive, well, one, that the outsiders would receive God's people and his message. And to reject them and to reject the message is to reject Jesus himself. 
Secondly is that Christians need to receive and welcome one another, care for each other, respect one another, do all they can to help one another, and never, ever, ever cause one another to sin. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say. So in the welcoming, you're respecting, you're receiving, and you're loving them in such a way that you would never cause them to sin. It says this, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, now some of your translations are going to say stumble, and what it's getting at is stumble or to fall to sin. That's why your translation translates, it translates it into sin. It might just, you, if you have a, depending on your translation, it might just say stumble, but the but the recourse is sin. That's what the text means. That's what it's saying. And little ones is not little children. Little ones is us. It's his disciples. Jesus is saying, who, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What is a millstone? Any farmers around here? Not here. I've had to look it up many, many times over the years. Apparently, it would be a big, like, circular stone. They're different, varying in different sizes, and it's, and it's used to, to crush different grains and all kinds of other stuff. And you would take an animal, like some, a strong animal, to, to walk around in a circle. It'd be, it'd be fastened to it, and this millstone, you know, it's really heavy. And it would have to be really dense. It would have to be a rock that could be heavy, and it not, isn't going to just crumble apart as it turns around over and over. It has to be a very dense, a very hard stone. So therefore, it was a very heavy stone. If you were like, look that up, they weighed anywhere from like 1,300, 3,000 pounds. And check this out. Historically, the Ro Romans, one of the Romans' way of, uh, of doing capital punishment was certainly crucifixion. But you want to guess another way of doing um, capital punishment? It was to fasten a millstone to your neck and then throw you overboard. So it's just a violent, radical, quick drowning that's horrific visually. And Jesus says... If you cause any one of these little ones to sin, it would be better than a millstone be tied around your neck and you drowned violently. Then, for what could happen to you if you do this? Now, if you look down, what you'll see is he's referring to hell. It is better to drown violently than you and then go to hell. Now, how do people do this to each other? How is it that God's little ones, that his disciples would be tempted or misled in such a way that they would sin and stumble. I mean, Jesus flat out says, but whoever causes one of these little ones um, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned to the depth of the sea. How do people do that? It's an important question that we should deal with. And the reality is there are just an infinite amount of ways that that could happen. God forbid, even in among God's people. And so what we see here is God is, God cares radically and loves his people so much. It is, they're so precious. It's extremely important that we take sin serious in such a way that we would, we would care not to stumble another brother or sister and cause them to sin. Now, how does that happen? Of all the ways, one of them could be to to try to help, help, try to convince them to, to partner with you and, and, and gossip, for example, about another brother or sister. 
And then what happens possibly, maybe this person over here doesn't, or didn't even know how to do that, didn't really participate, and now like you've instructed them how to gossip about other people. You might, say, you might, uh, you might maybe a, a, young, a young man, this can happen when you're older as well, of course, young man, he sees an attractive young single woman in the church that he likes, and she's walking with God, and she wants to be pure, and she's like, want, is looking for a husband, a godly husband to marry, and he, he gets to know her, and dates her, and everything seems okay, and then he instructs her, in sub, instruct, instructs her in such a way, and teaches her that, hey, look, we could just be married in God's eyes, and then commi- convinces her to fornicate. And Jesus said, it would be better than a millstone be put around your neck, and you drown than to do that. Now, there are a couple major ways that we do this. It's, it's cultural, there's cultural sins that impact and this also the individual. I've given you an example of the individual ways, right? It's getting someone to, to participate in your sin in some way, convincing that it's okay when it's not. On the, on the other side of things, we don't want to call something sin that's not sin. We don't want to call something sin that's not sin. But there are cultural ways that this happens. Hey, look, you guys are aware that there are entire cultures that have entire sinful ways about them. Some cultures are more prone to, um, to lying. An entire culture of lying. Some cultures have an entire culture of, of killing and murder. I, I remember like meeting a, 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 a tribesman from a, from a group of people in Central South America that where salvation took place radically. But when he described the culture of his people, he said one of the, pro- the dominant cultures of their people was to just take blatant, murderous revenge all the time. If someone did something they didn't like, boom, they would spear him, kill him. That, that, that was the, it was like this accepted cultural reality. It's what they did. Now, we look at that and think, dude, we got some laws in place. You can't just walk over to your neighbor and stab him. That would not be cool. Because Christianity has impacted our laws and all that. But entire culture given to to lying or or killing or or how about this? Worshipping our kids. Um, There's an entire culture around us. and And I mention this often, but look, there's a culture among us, among our people in our country of of abortion and a large population calling it okay. For people that have no voice, men and women die and perishing every day. A whole culture of it. And Jesus says it would be, it, it'd be better that a millstone were tied around your neck and you drown than to cause someone to sin in this way. That's what Jesus says. Or how about this? One of the, mo- the biggest tragedies of our day, and I was reminded of this by just an email and a message I got recently is, is the ways that, that culture has been lying to people um, among, our, among our country, but also it's confusing. It's called, caused confusion in the church. Christians have bought into um, things like transitioning and, and gender transitioning as being acceptable. Hey, now look, look, I have friends that don't know Jesus and that, and that are gay, and I love them, and I proclaim the gospel, with, and I would eat with them, and I want them to hear about Jesus. 
But look, the entire culture is telling children from a young age to junior high to definitely high school, definitely on the collegiate level and the more academic level, that transitioning and mortifying, uh, graphically changing your flesh to try to become something that you were never meant to be, they're teaching that that's okay. And young Christians and young children are being convinced that it's actually an option. And Jesus says it would be better that a millstone were tied around your neck and that you were drowned. And let me tell you why. Because later in the text it says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Woe means judgment, by the way. Woe to the world. Hey, look, now Christians, now we, it's easy to be like, yeah, dude, judge the world. Woe to the world. But look, Jesus is saying that in the midst of these Christians saying, dude, you better not do this. You know, God's little ones have an avenger, the God of heaven. Woe to the one who temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled and lame than to, with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your, eyes, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, Jesus says, and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is why it's better to be drowned than to be thrown into eternal fire. What this tells us and reminds us over and over again is that sin is extremely dangerous and it is awful. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus is saying, hey, look, receive each other, welcome each other, and beware that you do not receive people in a way that you cause them to sin. Jesus is saying, as you go out and you proclaim the good news of the gospel, you're going to be rejected. And woe to them when they cause you to stumble and sin. But hey, look, Christian, you need to know this, that it is wrong. It is wrong for you to cause someone else to stumble and sin. But let me just go back and remind us of the good news of the gospel. That Jesus has a way for those that has, have convinced the culture that it's okay to abort babies. Jesus has a way for those that have transitioned to be reconciled to himself. Jesus has a way for all kinds of sinners to come, to come to him and to receive forgiveness of sins, to come to him and know that they can have God's grace, to come to him that he can remove their, their, their wretched shame. Jesus says, come and I will make you clean. But it comes with an incredible warning. Look now, there are so many ways, there are so many ways that we could cause someone else to sin, and it is such a big deal. And so here's what I want to say. Don't do it, brothers and sisters. Be mindful of it. Be mindful that you don't lead someone into sin. And once again, let me say this. Don't call something sin that isn't sin. But at the same time, we want to, we want to make sure in our in our relationships, that we are not guiding someone and leading them astray in some way, causing them to, to believe in something they shouldn't. 
We live in a world where you guys have run into really famous Christians that have just denounced their faith publicly. Some of you don't know that. The wolves of you do. You know that. Others of you don't, didn't know that happened. Look, it's not shocking. It's not shocking. That's happened all through history. Remember Judas, one of Jesus' 12. He's famous. He was among Jesus, and he, he walked away from Jesus. It's not shocking. Hey, those that went out from us were never of us. Now, but look, you got to understand something. You need to understand that there are people that, you know, just because they, they, they leave our church, it doesn't mean that they've, you know, gone apostate and, they, and they're heretical and they left. Some people just leave for other reasons. Sometimes it's just consumerism. Look, one of the sins of our culture is consumerism. And they just don't like the popcorn that we're offering. And they want to eat popcorn somewhere else. And that's, a, like, we get it. Like, we have some grace with that. We understand that one of, the, one, of the sin, one of the things, the cultural issues that we live with is consumerism. It's all around us. Our, our, every part of our life is consumerism. And, and so we have a weakness to that. And so just because someone leaves doesn't mean they're being a pasta. It just means they want to eat popcorn somewhere else. They, you know, and the, pop, the popcorn they're offering isn't whatever. It doesn't have cheese in it or whatever. Whatever it might be. And, that, and that's okay. And so we want to offer some grace, but it's different when someone actually leaves and they're actually denying, they're denying God. And there's a way that we should respond to them, which I'll, which I'll get to, because what we'll see is God's heart toward them, toward a sheep that actually wanders and strays away. Number three, because sin is such a big deal and because humility matters so much, do something radical to deal with our sin. Jesus says this in verse 7, right? He pronounces a woe on the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than for you to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the, into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell of fire. Jesus is not telling you to cut your hands off. I just need to be clear for our radical literalists. Jesus is not telling you to pluck your eyeball out. Jesus is being hyperbolic, but he is being extremely radical. You need to do something radical about your sin. Jesus says there is a time to do something in extreme about your sin. Now, there have been times where I've, like, counseled people. They, they were struggling, for example, with pornography. I said, dude, you got to take a hammer and just smash your phone. They're like, whoa, 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 that's expensive. Dude, so is your soul. Isn't your soul expensive? Do you want heaven or do you want hell? No, but my mom went, well, dude, you know what? Bring your mom in because I want to save your life. Like, you got to, okay, lock it up. If you can't handle a phone, if you can't handle a computer, then you should not have one. It's that simple. You got to do something radical. You got to do something, in, 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 you know, radical and extreme to protect yourself. Look, you don't, you wouldn't try to prove your holiness by walking into a strip club to show, you, to show the world how holy you are. Look, I am holy. I can't, like, that would be dumb, Right? Like what Jesus is saying, hey, do something radical, you know, like break that computer or don't buy that, whatever it is. Block what you need to, to for your own soul's sake. 
Hey, look, don't go into that place. Hey, look, it might not, just, it might not be porn. It might just be sugar. I mean, right? What's more addictive, porn or sugar? I don't know, probably sugar. But hey, look, do it. And I, hey, look, I, you, want, you want to tempt the people doing keto right now? Like wave some, sh- you know, can't, like, like that's like, anyway, sorry. Look, you just wave some candy and <laughs> see what happens. But what Jesus is saying, you, ha- you must do something radical to deal with your sin, something extreme. And it might be as extreme as taking your computer and locking it away. And by the way, that's for men and for women. It's not just a man thing, it's, it's a woman thing. And we live in a world where it's just hypersex, sexualized, and, and look, it, 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 but for you, it might not be that. It might be food. It might be food, or it might be sex, or it might be power, or it could be any of those things. And for you, you might need to, to do something extreme. Now, leaving your church is not the way you do something extreme. Oh, well, there's some people there, and sometimes they, you know, I don't know, they eat sugar. Like, like that's not the reason to leave your, your church. Not a good reason. That's a dumb reason. But Jesus makes it absolutely clear that we need to do something radical. And you know what? It's going to take extreme humility to do that. Because here's what you have to do. You have to acknowledge that I am wrong and God is right. You see, Jesus says you will not enter the kingdom of heaven without humility being at the base. And Jesus is right. If you don't have that humility, if you don't have that heart change, you know, if you have a lot of pride, you're going to have a really hard time submitting to Jesus and what God's word says. And for some of us here today, you might be in a place where there are some things that you have maybe believed, maybe taught as okay, that you need to turn from and acknowledge that it is wrong. Maybe as it relates to sexuality, maybe you have some business to do with God. And it's possible that you might be in a place where you are teaching and instructing someone else that it is okay to do what we're doing. It is okay for us to fornicate because we are married in God's eyes, even though we're not married. And Jesus says, better to be thrown over this, into the sea and drown. Jesus says, you should do something radical to deal with the sin. Number four. Not only do we need to embrace this humility, not only do we need to receive one another and respect one another, and it will take humility to do that, and it will take humility to deal with our sin in a radical way, number three. But number four, if we see the kind of God that we have, who loves his lost sheep, we would never do what he's going to tell us not to do next. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, he says. Now, little ones keeps referencing, it's a reference to the childlike. He says, become like the child. These are the little ones. If anyone tempts one of these little ones to sin, right, it's horrible for them. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. There are a lot of ways that we can end up despising each other. And the scriptures speak everywhere about bearing with one another and loving one another and, and all of these important things. Jesus makes it very clear to us, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. You don't look down on them. We don't show partiality. I don't want them in my small group because they're kind of weird. I, you know what? We're gonna, let's let them go in that small group. We're the cool small group. We, 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 whatever it is. I'm not saying that's ever happened, but man, that, that can't, does happen. Just read James. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And now Jesus is going to give some reasons. Now the way people typically have read this passage is to think in terms of God's heart for people outside of the church and lost, which he does have a heart for, by the way. But as we read this portion of the passage, what we actually see with the pronouns that God uses in this text, he's actually talking about sheep, actual sheep, his little ones that stray away, and what kind of heart and compassion we should have for them. Now, in light of people that have like, walked away from the faith and made that really public, all, this will help instruct us as we, as we look at this, how we deal with them, but also how we deal with each other. Because it can be really easy just to despise people that say foolish things on social media who are famous. But Jesus says this, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Get ready to read something that you're, it's going to throw you off, but I'm going to help us understand. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, there's a lot of discussion in different perspective on how to handle this particular area. And there's different views on it. Some people have come to the conclusion of, of just a, a one-to-one ratio, you know, um, uh, guardian angel with his believers. But we know that scripture teaches that somehow in the midst of all this, God actually has his angels at his dispatch when he pleases to send them to care, to minister to his saints as he pleases. God does that, and we can leave it at that. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now this is all for an argument. What do you think? So if there is a God in heaven who has angels at his dispatch to send to aid his, his saints, his little ones, as he pleases, then the argument is, why would you ever despise one of these little ones? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Listen to what Jesus says. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, you catch that? That one of these little ones should perish. And it fits with all the rest of the text. Jesus is talking about his saints, his little ones, these sheep, his sheep that actually stray away. There will be times when people, that, that people get saved and they're among us and they stray away for some reason. Just some garbage or they get tempted by some sin or, or whatever it might be. And if they have a God in heaven who has angels at his dispatch, at his, at his, at his pleasure to send to their aid as he pleases and who would leave the mountaintop of the healthy to go rescue this one, then why would we ever despise them? That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, then why would we ever mistreat them? Why would we ever despise them? So here's the conclusion. Here's what we understand. It is extremely important that we care for each other and respect one another and love one another as Jesus commands his sheep to do. And that we would never cause them to sin. People, hey, people are responsible for their own sin, but did you know there are t- ways in which we could mislead them that would be t- completely sinful? When you teach someone to sin, it's wrong. Oh, look, we could fornicate. It's like we're married in God's eyes. 
Hey, look, you know what? You want to transition? God will still love you. Hey, look, you know what? I get it. You're, you're, you're struggling with this. It's, it's okay. No, no, no. It's, it's not okay. Like, sin is not okay. Sin is awful. Sin is terrible. Sin damns us. But here, remember the good news of the gospel, though. Jesus washes us clean. For those who are humble enough to trust in him by faith, we are made clean. We are put in right standing because of a sovereign, holy God. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, unless you turn and become like, one, like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that is what the word of God says. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing mercies on our lives. We pray that you would be with us powerfully this week, Father, as we live on mission. I pray that you would guide us so that we would never lead one another astray or lead one another into sin. I pray this in your name. Amen.